Welcome to the Healthy Jasmine Podcast, a panel discussion on behaviors, innovations, and trends in health and self-care. My name is Christophe Choquet. I'm the author of the book called Health Enthusiasm and a global keynote speaker on the future of health and self-care business. Every month, I discuss with a panel of experts the positive changes that are shaping our health and happiness. And today, we have a full panel. Calling in from Barcelona is our digital health connector, Aline Noiset. Hola. Our American in Paris and medical expert in digital health, Aditi Joshi. Hey, everyone. From London, customer experience and research expert, Krupa Sutar. Hi, everybody. And last but not least, from Ghent, Belgium, human experience expert, Mo Zouina. Hello there. So tell me, Aline, we missed you last month. So we're curious to know, what health issues did you witness in the past month? So my health enthusiasm this month is about microbiome. So two weeks ago, the FDA approved the first fecal microbiome drug. So I've been following that space for some years now, and I'm very, very excited about that news. So when it comes to microbiome, it is said that the, the gut would be the, the, the second brain of the, the, the body. And research are, are showing that things or problems issue with the microbiome could explain some diseases or some conditions like depressions. And uh, there have been some research done on, on mice about transplanting poop from one person to another, like in specific conditions, of course, and that could have a positive impact on, on those people. So remember, there was an example with uh, obesity, for instance, like they were transplanting poop from uh, like um, a normal mice to an obese mice, and they were saying that obese mice like getting getting thinner, not losing weight. So the what happened two weeks ago, it's a drug called Rebiota, developed by uh, Faring Pharmaceuticals, and it's to address a condition called C. difficile. It's like inflammation of the, the colon. And uh, so it's actually we're using bacteria from the poop. By introducing that drug in a person with C. C. difficile, it, in reintroducing good bacteria, into the gut of that that person. So I think that's really, really great news because it's also the beginning thing. There is more things to come. So I was mentioning obesity before, depression is another one, diabetes could be another one. They're researching that if we do that uh, fecal transplant, we could actually maybe reverse diabetes for some people. So yeah, very exciting news. That's yeah, amazing indeed. I remember just before COVID, I was involved in a project that was also about microbiome. It was with a supermarket who actually wanted to adapt your online basket based on your microbi microbiome, just to make sure that you buy the right stuff for your microbiome. So I think it's a very exciting area and I, I'm, I'm really curious to see where this is going. Mo, tell me, what healthy jism did you see? Well, we don't always have to come up with new topics. I think we can pick up topics we addressed before. Remember we talked about the dopamine nation and how we're all addicted to something, but you know that in the US, you know, the opioid crisis, the uh, drug overdose epidemic continues to worsen in the United States. And by the looks of the numerous series and movies dedicated to this topic, like uh, Netflix, HBO and Hulu, Hulu, we're talking about came painkiller, heroin, the death trip, drug overdoses, both fatal and non-fatal continue to impact the world and especially the U.S. I think this year more than 81,000 overdose deaths, but also more than 180,000 people overdosed on opioid and survived it. But there are some just justice coming up. CVS and Walgreens agreed to pay $10 billion to settle lawsuits linked to the opioid sales. CVS and Walgreens have agreed to pay more than $10 billion to several states and lawsuits against them alleging their roles in the opioid crisis. CVS will take up uh, $5 billion over 10 years, while Walgreens would pay $5.7 billion over 15 years. Some states have already put their candidacy to get a part of that, and hopefully that will help fight the opioid crisis. But there's another news. There's a news that researchers have developed a new substance that activates adrenaline receptors rather than opioid receptors to help relieve chronic pain and the good news is that these new compounds have similar pain relieving qualities as opioids, but do not appear to induce the same way of addiction or uh, respiratory depression. So 
good news on topics that we addressed earlier on mental health, addiction, and there is some compensation, some justice, and maybe also some nice perspective of people trying to treat their pain without being so vulnerable and exposed to addiction. That's lovely. And indeed, we touched upon that topic before. And, and one of the other topics that we touched upon before was cars and, and the roles that cars will be playing in uh, in healthcare. And so this week, I mean, I think a week ago, basically, another car brand marched into this area. Um, the CEO of Renault China is also the founder of the car startup, the electric vehicle startup, actually called Bianca. And it's a, a startup that wants to go beyond the car, hence Bianca. And what they want to do is they want to redefine the relationships between cars and people. And so we talked about many, many times how your health and self-care solutions will be entering the many places in our lives, our homes, our cars, and uh, of course, our work. And so I really like that topic, uh, Mo. You brought things up from the past. Well, let me do the same. The car is also one that we will be talking about a lot in the future. But Mo also talked about Netflix. I believe, uh, Krupa, you had something about Netflix as well this uh, month. Yeah, I've actually got two things. Uh, one is an old topic as well that I want to re, uh, resurface. But yes, let's start with a Netflix documentary that I watched. So this is just a really interesting documentary that I came across, and it's known as Stutz, so S-T-U-T-Z. And it's basically about a relationship that the relationship between Jonah Hill and his psychiatrist. And I, I think I really enjoy this doc, uh, documentary, possibly because I have a psychology background, or I just like to see this relationship between a therapist and his client. And ultimately, what it does is it moves back and forth between their earlier lives, so both of their earlier lives, and their lives today, and how they play out and how their lives obviously are playing out in therapy, but just generally. What I really liked about this is that you often go to your therapist thinking that they're going to fix you. But actually, what it is, is it's a common misconception that they're going to fix you because everybody has an issue in their lives and nobody has it worked out. And I really thought that this documentary was good at highlighting that, that even when you do go to your therapist, you want your answers. They may not always have the answers. They're, they're not there to give you the answers, but they may also have things going on. So if you have a chance over the next few weeks, do watch that because it's, it's a really good documentary. And then the second thing I wanted to talk about was actually resurfacing the women's health strategy that we spoke about when a few months ago in Something Nothing or Everything. So there's been an update on that in England, and the government announced that they're awarding just under 2 million to 16 organisations. And it's a wellbeing fund that they've set up, and it's run by the Department of Health and Social Care and NHS England. And they launch a new fund every, and it lasts for around three fiscal years. And over the next three years, between 2022 and 2025, they're going to be focusing on reproductive well-being in the workplace. And it's to provide holistic support for women who are experiencing any form of reproductive health issues. For example, there may be menopause included in that as well. You've got fertility problems, you've got miscarriage and pregnancy loss, and those also going through IVF. But the aim is to keep them in the workplace. And those organisations include Endometriosis UK. They also include Fertility Network. You've got SANS, who are a charity that support families who have undergone the death of their baby. You've got Tommy's and Mind for mental health and wellbeing support and many more. So it's a really good start for the women's health strategy. A long way to go. Uh, there's a lot of catching up to do, but still a really nice start, which I thought I'd like to update you on. Yeah, thank you for that. And indeed, I, I think everything that goes towards a more holistic approach is definitely the way forward. We'll talk about it later in this episode as well. I'd like to jump on that as well, because I think we talked about Netflix, but there's another company, Spotify, that recently made the news because the CEO of Spotify, who apparently already in 2013 was talking to the Financial Times about his passion for healthcare, Actually, he told that he, he spends every day several hours thinking about how to fix the screwed up healthcare system. Supposing that is true. What, what we heard now is that the Spotify CEO, Daniel Ek, is behind a health tech startup. 
and also a primary care clinic, actually. I mean, he poured several millions in, into the company. And so the, the company has two parts. It's, it's the health tech part, which it basically is a solution that aims um, to provide patients with, you know, health checks and, and regular preventative care, daily health services from a more holistic point of view. And there's also the primary care clinic, which is called Atrium, and which is now open in Stockholm. And they promise to be able to allow people to visit it the day after. So you can really make an appointment for the day after. I really think it's a, it's, it's a very interesting evolution because I, I think it, it, it brings some new blood to the industry, to the healthcare industry. Uh, you know, a company like Spotify, which is known for creating amazing experiences, is now entering an industry which is, let's say, not particularly known for providing great experiences. And so what could be interesting is that what will he bring as an experience to the healthcare? Now, I posted it on LinkedIn. It was one of my most favorite or popular posts, I have to say. There was about 50,000 views, 300 people reacted to it. But a lot of people were very negative about Spotify, or at least the CEO of Spotify entering the healthcare space. They said that he should stay in, in, the, in the music industry. They say that techish should remain out of it because they're in it for the money or they're in it for the data. I kind of disagree with it because I think new blood might be interesting. But there is a, a danger, of course, because indeed if, if those kind of companies come with a focus on data, then we might have a particular problem. Isn't it, Aditi? Because you wanted to talk about data as well and how data is actually something very valuable or dangerous uh, to deal with. Yeah, you really set me up perfectly. So for the big story that... I wanted to bring up was, so in the U.S., we have a lot of direct-to-consumer marketed telehealth companies. And so there are about 50 of them that were found to have trackers on their website. So patients who had entered data within questionnaires, many of these were about substance abuse or mental health services. They were found to have trackers, which were being sent to a number of big data tech companies. So when we talk about trust and the reason that people might be a little bit concerned about people going into healthcare, such as a Spotify CEO and selling data, well, they have a reason to be. It happened. And I remember having this conversation thinking that of all things, in general, health data is the most protected or should be the most protected, or we think it's the most protected. Government's protected. It's so you think that if at this moment that people are actually selling it or they're tracking it, our ceiling is, is gone. Basically, we there is nothing sacred, essentially. One of the thoughts, though, is... How did this happen, right? So well, the reason is, and the laws I know are different in Europe, but the way that our security works is that we have a law called HIPAA and you're supposed to be secure. HIPAA doesn't actually make everything confidential. That's too much detail to go into right here. But what ends up happening is the way that most companies are set up, you have separate entities for the company itself, right? Whoever the exec team is, the product, the development. And then they set up a separate entity for the actual clinicians who are working part of it. And so that clinician entity were HIPAA compliant or they were held to those standards. But there's that gray area in the middle where the other entity may not be. And so this ended up being where that happened. So this was a big story. I don't even know if people know about it, but it is certainly concerning to me because, again, it is uh, showing us that there is an ability and uh, a way to get around and get health data. And then the second question someone asked, which I thought was an interesting question, and there was another article, a recent article, a research article about this, about if you can do it safely, let's say you can get people's health data safely, de-identified, not what happened here, but if it was de-identified and people could actually get that data, do we have a moral obligation to use it to get better AI for population statistics and better population health? I don't have an answer for it because there is no direct correlation with using that type of data and putting it into an AI so that people understand it. But I do think it's a it's a question that has to be answered. But suffice it to say, we don't actually know what's going to happen to these companies. A lot of them fixed it or they're trying to fix it, but uh, the government still has to respond on what they're going to do. Yeah, I think it's um, a very interesting case and we'll definitely hear about it in the in the near future. I once heard somebody speak about the difference between financial data and health data. And financial data actually loses its value over time because your financial situation always changes. While your health data um, remains valid, if you have a certain disease, a chronic disease at least, it might remain that way. And so in that way, healthcare data is 
up to 12 times as valuable as, as, as financial data. So that's why a lot of companies are chasing it. That's why this is such a big deal indeed, as you said. There is one more health enthusiasm before we wrap things up. I think it's the biggest health enthusiasm of the past year. And I'm, I was a little bit surprised that nobody brought it up. But maybe you read it. It came from New Zealand. Anybody saw the news coming in from New Zealand? No? Because New Zealand has actually banned the cigarette for people born after January 1st, 2009. Which means that if you were born after that date, you will never be able to buy cigarettes. So it's the first country that actually bans cigarettes. You cannot buy any cigarettes, even if you're 50 years old. If you are born after the 1st of January 2009, you're not allowed to buy any cigarettes. They also downsize the number of places where actually cigarettes were sold from 6,000 to 600. So this is the most radical action, I think, against smoking. Um, and that's why I really thought it was one of the big, biggest health enthusiasms out there. And so... It is a health enthusiasm world indeed. So many positive changes are making our world a little healthier and happier every day. I really enjoy watching these changes unfold and I analyze them and I try to understand the broader impact of these changes. I even write a newsletter about it called It's a Health Enthusiasm World. If you're interested, go and discover them on healthenthusiasm.com. Now, every month during the Health Enthusiasm podcast, I'll recap one particular newsletter for the panel to debate. And this week's newsletter is Agelessness Aging. So this newsletter talks about how we as mortal human beings go about aging and the impact that it has or will have on society. There is a reality that we all know. As we age, we first reach the peak of our abilities, and after that, our performance declines as we get older. There are many signals. I mean, we get gray hair, our body changes, we get wrinkles. And we've probably all seen it happening with our grandparents or parents while we were young, and we probably are seeing it happening right now with ourselves. I know I do at least. But the perception of aging is changing now. It is visible in how we behave and dress ourselves. And if we compare to 150 years ago, people did not want to look poor. Now, people don't want to look old. And that's why people spent billions of euros to look more youthful. And it created a humongous anti-aging industry. Think about books, the supplements, the videos, the courses, the weight loss clinics, personal coaches, nutritional advisors, what have you all. There's all the makeup and the anti-aging creams that exist, but there's also cosmetic surgery or cosmetic treatments for that matter. But basically, all of this didn't really you know, fit the anti-aging industry because it's not really about anti-aging. It just makes you look a little bit less old, if you will. Until recently, because right now there's a lot of investment going into slowing down or even reversing the process of aging. This is called the longevity industry. I mean, there's pharmaceutical companies like GSK, Novartis, Celgene, and even AbbVie that have been invested in this domain for many, many years. And also, of course, there's uh, university labs that are very active in this field. But what's new is that there's now a lot of startups that are worth mentioning uh, here as well. And there's a lot of money being poured in that industry. And when I say a lot of money, even famous billionaires invest heavily in what they call longevity startups. Think about Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Peter Thiel, Michael Bloomberg, Richard Branson, Mark Zuckerberg, Tim Disney, and, and many, many more. So there's a lot of money going into it. And there's a lot of big companies already out there. I'll name just a few. I mean, there's one is Biosplice is probably the, the biggest one. It already has a value of about $11.6 billion. And it's making up 20% of the longevity industry right now. So that's the biggest one, Biosplice. But there's also Google uh, with Calico Life Science, which is uh, on that same front working on, on the longevity. And it's, it's very interesting because there's a lot of pharmaceutical companies that are invested in, uh, that invest in money in Calico Life Science. One of them being AbbVie. They've poured in several billions of euros in that company. And then there's, um, the most famous one maybe is, um, Altos Lab, which is backed by Jeff Bezos. 
And why it is most famous is because their board of directors is probably one of the most amazing board of directors in life sciences. They have top executives from pharmaceutical uh, companies like GSK and Genentech. They have former Nobel Prize laureates. They have CRISPR pioneers. And they have even founders from other super successful startups like Grail or Juno Therapies. So an amazing company. And so what we're dealing with here is a, an industry, the longevity industry, with a huge potential, in my opinion, and who has already a lot of money and a lot of super startups. The thing is that in the short run, it will not help us to not grow old or something. The thing is that these companies will help us to understand the biology of aging, and it will help to understand the, the causes of age-related diseases. And so in other words, it will make the prevention of age-related diseases more feasible. Which means that we will be able to add healthier years to our lives, not just more years, which is really super interesting, of course, because nobody really wants to be old. We don't want to feel old. We really want to age well. We want to live healthier longer. It's not about anti-aging. It's about aging well. And so if you manage to do this, then this will have a major impact on every business. And I'm not just talking about the, the shift that cosmetic brands will make by talking about aging well or state of anti-aging products, but I'm talking about the impact that adding a couple of healthier years could have on the job market, for example, or retirement plans, housing, city infrastructures, financial services, you know, think about uh, insurances and loans, for example, but also in healthcare, the hospitals, the rest homes. How about um, education? How about travel? I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening. But that could be happening. And that's actually the prospect that I wanted to bring forward with this newsletter about agelessness aging. What is the impact on healthcare and our society at large of how we look at aging and how we will age in the near future? So I think I'll go to Mo first here. I think sometimes you feel you sound a bit like uh, the philosophists of, the, of our gang. So I'm, I'm happy to hear how you look at these. Well, I was intending to take a philosoph philosophical, ethical approach <laughs> I to knew it, it. So thank you. I knew it. Thank you for casting me on uh, those things. I don't know if it, I, I think, will it make the world better? I'm talking about two things, aging better. And then my question is, what do we want to die of? Because the value of life is defined by the existence of dying. And I'm sure no one wants to suffer. So from that perspective, I really like the approach. But my question is, will it make the world better? And why are we kind of pursuing this? I think the extension of life and healthy life, for me, also has a parallel with consumerism. If you look at travel, if you look at working and things like that. But for me, what makes this life valuable is its scarcity. That makes us want to do this. That makes, that brings the better. If we know that things are scarce, we try harder to make the best out of it. And I'm not sure if we're entitled to more time. We'll be, you know, if we have more time and better time, I'm not sure if we'll be taking better care of ourselves because there's less scarcity, right? So if there's more abundance of something, it's kind of the default mode. And I don't know if we will be taking better care of ourselves or of the planet. So I think time is subjective. We know that living a purposeful life makes us healthier. And the more life is experienced as meaningful, the less we are aware of time. So I don't, I'm not sure we need more time. I think we need better time, but I think we need also more meaningful time. So that's the first part. Secondly, there is also death inequality. I don't know if you know it, uh, between the developed world and the third world, the life expectancy is completely different. We're not even able to get basic medication out to the third world. And we'll see the developed world just getting access to better quality of life and leaving a lot of people behind. So I don't know what that will do. You talked about, Christophe, you talked about employment, you talked about healthcare, you talked about travel. I'm talking about immigration. I'm talking about social pressure. We're not even, to, you know, if you look at the sub-Saharan region, let alone life extension technology they're just looking to survive you know the life expectancy there is about plus 40 plus 50 and then the last part is intergenerational isolation i think the quality of life is just there if we can live as a community and we also see that you know for i'm an old person for my daughter <laughs> right and we see people in homes being isolated from regular life from other generations and i think we're social human beings and if we live longer or better, how will that work in terms of inter intergenerational connections? So, yeah, very interesting, but I think the ethical part, it will happen eh? for sure. It will happen and people with money will get access to it, but I think it will also 
I think will generate a lot of inequalities. And uh, it's a default mode. It's for me, it's an excuse for consumerism, and I think it's it's hollowing out life's value. Yeah, that's my take on it. Interesting. And just to, to put a positive note to it, Mo, 50 is a new 30. So you can say that to your daughter. Thank you very much. <laughs> I like you too, Christopher. I like you too. <laughs> but regarding uh, inequality, um, I think that that's, that's definitely an interesting point. Krupa, what, what's your thought on this? Yeah, I agree with what Mo is saying in terms of inequality. That's one of the things that I was thinking about and how it affects different areas of the world. I was thinking of, about the fact that there are some cultures which actually welcome aging. There's also the concept of wabi-sabi, is it wabi-sabi, which is the Japanese aesthetic that originated in the 16th century, and it's all around simplicity, transient, but also that nothing is is perfect, and they celebrate imperfectness or imperfection. And I think that, you know, There are some cultures which may not want to embrace this. We may do in the Western world, but I'm not sure how it's going to translate across the world. And to this point where you talked around its impact on commercialism, uh, Mo and both Christoph, actually, I was working on this very concept about four or five years ago now, when... I was working in the Foresight division and working for a company where we were looking at marketing. And typically, the company's philosophy is to, or many companies will market to younger audiences. But actually, if you look at cohorts, and I hate to use cohorts because actually they're not a true representation, but millennials, and I'm going to say that in inverted commas, is where people will go to. But actually, those who have got the most disposable income are those who are slightly older. Now, actually, so the company actually changed its marketing ploy. But with that in mind and saying, okay, if we're going to look at those who've got most disposable income, it's the older people, or what do we need for them? Do we need different forms of seating areas? Do we need You know, they, and there's more, we've got more and more older people traveling the world, for example. Do we need to have more multilingual staff? Well, that's the impact that you have then on recruitment and actually staffing and, and whatnot. So it's already happening in a commercial sense, you know, and then you've got the startups who are looking at it from your body perspective. But then I also think about well, what's going to happen about the brain, you know, are our brains equipped to cope with this never-ending aging or you know are we going to are we going to have bodies that want to carry on but our brains can't because that's what we weren't intended to do so i'm not sure about this one interesting that it's already happening in the commercial world but are we actually there you know mentally to be able to cope with it no it's interesting by the way i, I think the um the business uh, side of things within this longevity or aging world is called silver economy Because uh, we they have silver hair, and so it's the silver economy economy, which is is, is actually way bigger than the millennial economy, um, if you want. Silver hair is actually currently a fashion statement for for younger children, younger people. So it is, you know, let's take it that. It is. <laughs> you don't have silver hair yet. No, I have zero yet. No white hair. <laughs> Good. No one. Yes. <laughs> I think I'm I'm lucky because of my uh yeah my my daddy he, he got white hair like super super late so yeah hopefully I've got those genes yeah cool so tell me what you think about this uh, longevity industry so I think it's a it's a very interesting topic and I agree with what she said it's good if we can live better like enjoy quality of life but it made me think about what if we live until like 140, like you were saying in your, your, your newsletter, how is that going to impact life? Like, are we still going to work until 65? Are we going to be working longer? We know we have big issues with paying retirement at the moment, so there will be economic impact. And I'm like, will people really be willing to work more years? I think people are excited to, to write your retirement, change your life. So it means you will kind of double the life Yeah, I think that would be a, a big impact. But I'm with you on really focusing on um, improving that life, making those extra years more nicer to live. But then I thought also about the more the like med medicine side. I have some friends who did uh, like stem cells treatment to reverse aging. 
And I'm a bit skeptical about that. Like for me, it goes a bit against against nature. I understand what they do it. I respect it, but yeah, I'm a bit skeptical. And there was also a few uh, a few months ago they were talking about a startup focusing on on menopause, and what they want to do is actually delay menopause, so the to actually address the symptoms of menopause for the the woman. And this also has more implications. No, it means like. Yeah, so if life, if we're going to 140, also means that we would be able to have babies later. It would really like shift the way life will uh, will happen. So yeah, very, very, very interesting. Yeah, okay. Thank you for that. So uh, we, we had the philosophy, we had the psychology, we had the economy. Maybe now go to the medical experts. What's your take on this, uh, Aditi? So oddly enough, my first thought is actually philosophical. One thing as you go through your medical career is figuring out how you relate to death. And that isn't something that's taught. That's something as a human being you have to get more comfortable with, right? Especially in the emergency department, we see a lot of death, we see a lot of disability. And it got easier as I figured out what that meant to me. And so in the end, you know, I find it not scary. I understand it. There's been beautiful moments where, you know, I sat there with a family member as or someone as they died, you know, that is real. Those are some of the most human moments I've ever had. There isn't a way to describe it better than that. And so because of this idea of pushing it back and this rush makes me think that it's not really about aging. It's this deep fear of death that people don't really know how to deal with. And that in itself is a is a separate issue. How do we deal with this intense fear of death? Because in many cultures these days, we're very separated from it. It isn't in front of us the way it was when people had farms or animals in front of them, or we lived in communities where death was part of the cycle. And so this fear is really what I think is driving this. Second, I think that, you know, aging and the way we think about it changes by generations. You know, my colleagues here mentioned that, but, you know, everyone wants to look young. But I will say that that generally happens when you are younger because you're willing to try things and experiment with things that may not be safe. Right. We have a lot of episodes of this that we may find in the future are not uh, safe. So I always think of the stories that people used to put lead on their face or eat lead because it made them look younger or paler because they wanted to look good. Now we look at it and we think, oh, my gosh, that is intense and obviously terrible for your health. But who knows what we're doing to ourselves these days that in 100 years, people are also going to say the same thing. And then as people get older, they want to feel better, right? And some of the ways we do that is trying to use and medications for chronic conditions, right? You mentioned some of them in that newsletter. We're trying to make sure that the chronic conditions that can cause disability, death, are what we're treating. But people don't always feel the symptoms of those chronic conditions. So even if we're sitting here saying, yes, people want to age better, they may not do it because if you don't feel the direct effects of the medication, this is something that'll have an effect 20 years, 30 years down the line. It's actually really hard to convince people to do it. And it reminds me that of a very, it's a, well, it's an English saying, but I'm sure it translates to other languages, but youth is wasted on the young right? As you get older, you realize what a gift it is and what you should have maybe invested in. But it doesn't matter how many times I will tell 20-year-olds that, it doesn't matter. You don't feel it, right? I'm sure Mo is shaking his head. He's probably thinking of his children and how to do that, right? We're just old people trying to tell young people about this. And then last, I would just say, you know, as far as the, the, the medical portion, there is going to be a lot of that inequality because in the end, we're going to be creating an entire group of people who are living longer but I don't care how well you think you're living, you are still going to need some type of caregiving. It's not going to be as if you're 140 running marathons. Yeah, maybe the odd person might, but not most people. And so there's going to be a shift in our economy to senior caregiving. There's going to be a lot more chronic care conditions we have to deal with. We're going to have more homes like we were talking about. And then we're going to have to figure out how to keep people in this workforce. What I think is going to happen is that that's not going to happen. There's going to be a few people who do that. Everybody else is going to die at you know whatever the age is that uh, happens to be the life expectancy at the time or less. And it'll, it won't really be an equal footing. Yeah, I like that. Thank you for that. And I, I really, really like your your thought on you know what you said, the fear of debt, and your personal experience there. I also wrote a newsletter on dying well, 
and how that changed in the recent years. Um, so people are looking at uh, dying in a different way. Maybe it's, it's one for a next podcast. But okay, thank you for that discussion, everybody. Now let's move to the next segment of the Health 2000 podcast. Is it something, nothing or everything? So every month, one of the panelists brings an idea, an innovation or an evolution forward that sparked their enthusiasm. The rest of the panel will then debate and share their opinion about it. Do they find it something, nothing or everything? And this month, I'll take the topic. Because about a month ago, it was announced that Saudi Arabia started the construction of the line. And that is something worth mentioning. Before I explain what it is and why I should, uh, why I wanted to bring this up, let me take one step back. Because in 2016, Saudi Arabia announced their vision for 2030. It's a plan that actually wants to reduce Saudi Arabia's dependency on oil. And so it wants to diversify its economy and develop different public services like, um, you know, technology. They want to grow education. They want to focus on anti-aging technology, for example, but also on tourism and, and many others. Now to realize this vision, this 2030 vision, they dedicated an entire zone for the development and realization. It's somewhere in the north, northwest of Saudi Arabia, near the Red Sea. I think the place is called Taruk or something. And they've chosen that location specifically because they believe it's the crossroads of the world, because the Red Sea is a famous trade uh, route, of course. Maybe you may have heard of this project. It's called NEOM. It's actually NEO plus M. Uh, NEO comes from Latin. It means new. And M comes from, it's the first letter of Mustagbal, which is um, Arabic for future, apparently. And so NEOM will be a futuristic city that contains multiple things. One of the things is a floating industrial complex called the Oxagon, which is basically a massive mega port, if you will, which is important in that area. There will also be a luxurious seaside resort, Trojina, I think it's, uh, it's pronounced. I think that is already almost finished. But then there is the line, which is a one trillion dollar project uh, and the project is basically a mirrored linear city a mirrored linear city and so the plans were announced in january 2021 so it's exactly two years ago and it really came when it came out it really sounded like a an utopian fantasy project and the more they announce or, or they share some information the more it actually sounds insane basically because what is it it's a city that is structured as a, a, a line. So it's a, an, an, a linear city of 170 kilometers. For the people in the US, it's 100 miles. For the people in the UK, it's 100 miles long. And it goes straight across the desert. It is 500 meters high, which is as high as the Empire State Building, twice as high as the Eiffel Tower, or five times as high as the Big Ben. And it's 200 meters wide. The most amazing part, probably, or at least there's so many parts that are amazing, but one of the most amazing things is that the outside of this 170 kilometers wall is actually, there are, there are actually mirrors. So it's one huge, long mirror. And the insides will be built vertically, 500 meters high, and will have everything and more that a normal megacity has. You will have the possibility to go to anything that you need or to, to, to collect anything that you need within five minutes of walking distance, which is, I mean, we often talk about the 15 minute city. They want to build the five minutes walking city. It's built in three layers. Beneath you have the transportation, then you have the businesses and the services, and on top you have the walkable areas. One of the most amazing things is that the entire city so the 170 kilometers of wall, inside the wall, 95% of that project will be reserved for nature. 95% will be lakhs and trees and all of that. Within that city, 9 million residents will live, which is approximately Belgium, a little smaller than Belgium, say. And it will be fueled 100% on renewable energy. There'll be no cars, no other transportation, only a high-speed train that can take you from one end to the other end in 20 minutes. And so rather than being focused on transportation and infrastructure, the priority of this project, and that's what makes it really interesting, is people's health and well-being. And so the reason why I bring this up is because it is said that this city will bring the future of cities closer to today. 
It's basically one big research project, an experimentation living lab, if you will, that will actually accelerate pro progress. And it's supposedly also the case for healthcare. More concretely, what this will mean is that they will build a new healthcare system from scratch that will focus on prevention, digital infrastructure, and artificial intelligence. I think those ones are pretty obvious. What's more exceptional is that they say that the line, the city for 9 million people, will have a hospital. That's what I read about it. So which, if I inter interpret this correctly, there will be only one hospital. At least there will not be a lot. Because they consider a hospital as being a place of a very, very last resort. Instead, all residents will have an AI-enabled virtual doctor called Dr. Neom. And they also receive nudging wearables and digital twins to monitor and assess their own health continuously. It's something at which they call the proactive prevention approach. And they believe that every single resident, every single human being has a lifetime personal responsibility to take care of their health. Now, if something happens, there's a lot of health centers at five minutes walking distance of everybody. And on the, in these health centers, you'll have multidisciplinary teams, nutritionists, psychologists, life coaches, and, and all of that. And the purpose is to really have them integrated, uh, have a bigger integration between these life co coaches. Now, all of this is supposed to make health and well-being the number one priority for the residents of the line of the city. And it is supposed to create one of the healthiest places in the world. At least that is according Dr. Maliha Hashim, which is the health, well-being and biotech director at Neom, and who is also the designer of this new healthcare system. And so I really was amazed by this article, by everything that is happening. I really was amazed to hear that it is being built. So I'm now very curious to hear from the others. Do you think this is something, nothing or everything? Alin, what's your take on this? So for me, it would be, it'll be some, something. I find the project very exciting on paper. I think it's great, but my something would be because I want to see how things will actually uh, being implemented. No, but the exciting part is that I feel all what we've been talking about those past years, about new technologies, about, about healthcare, this will be implemented in one place in real. And I think that's something really, really amazing. No, And something that that lady man mentioned is the, the regulations. I think today in many countries, the issue is that we may be struggling to adopt new new technologies because we have to adapt to the current regulation. But being like by building a new city from scratch, she said that they would define the re regulation themselves. So that's why I'm like, let's see how this actually evolves. But yeah, I think it's really this opportunity to build something from scratch, putting the regulation in place that needs to be put in place. And yes, yeah, something that I really like also, it's the the fact that it's a, a, a greener place. So that's, we see a lot of pollution everywhere at the moment. And then something that would get me excited to to live into that that city, you know, aside also from uh, all the technologies that will be implemented. And something I like, she said that also the visitors would be getting a digital twins. So not just the Naomians, but also the, the visitors, which is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. It is. And indeed, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think it's it's almost like cliche in the way that all the digital solutions, like the ideal dream, they mention like it is nothing and then it will happen. The thing is, uh, Saudi Arabia is also notoriously known for not finishing mega projects like this. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Now about the greener place, there is this thing, if you cut a landscape or nature in two by putting a 170 kilometers wall, what will what will that mean for nature and, and the way that, you know, I don't know, animals migrate or, I mean, there, there will have, there, there will be some impact on, on nature, but I do like it is supposedly a greener place. Krupa, what's your thought on this? Is it something, nothing or everything? So I think for me, this falls as something. And as I mentioned earlier, when I was walk working in the Foresights team, we were looking at living in around 2040 and, and what that's going to be like across the world. And if you think about the concept of this, it's got everything you need for wellness. It's got sun, it's got sea, it's got uh, nature, it's got no pollution, and it's also built on biophilic living. And as you'll know, if you go into nature, 
nature has certain patterns in it that you actually don't get in everyday lives. You can only get that through the trees. They're called, they're known as fractals. My issue here becomes around access. Who, who's going to be eligible to go and live in this, this space? You know, there's only, I think, nine million people, as you've said. So who gets access to this space? Are they then going to become more elite in their health and well-being and care that they receive? What's the affordability as well around it all? You know, how much is it going to cost to live there? If you have to import everything in through the line, automatically things become very expensive. So I guess I think it's it's something because I can see what they're trying to do through the promotion of sunsea nature and, and biophilic living. My concept is all around access, inequality, affordability. And yeah, I would love to travel there one day and see what it's like. But I think I need to see what the eligibility criteria would be for people to even get there. So for me, it's something. I'm curious to know whether they'll find 9 million people who want to live there because it's still kind of, it's weird to live in a vertical space that is 170 kilometers long. And um, I don't really see it happening yet. I know I don't really know how that would feel, but um, it's good to, 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 to hear that you think of it that way. Aditi, a new healthcare system built like that from scratch. What's your thought on it? You know, my first thought, of course, is the quality, the inequality that's going to be developed, as I mentioned. So one of the questions I have, too, is how we're going to get there, because to build such a thing, who's going to build it and what's going to happen to those workers? I think we're all quite aware of those type of conversations that are happening at this moment in general, which I won't mention why, but I'll say that. But and because of that, like who who is going to even do this, right? And so that healthcare system is not for those people. They're going to go again for certain groups of people. So saying that aside, that's my first thought. But I will say, so taking it in the spirit that healthcare system is meant, it would be really incredible. It's almost like a experiment to see using all these digital technologies, how well can it serve an entire population? Does it actually help improve access, a decrease in quality, decrease costs? Do we have more efficiencies in the system? It's almost like its own small microcosm. And uh, it would be interesting to see what happens. I just don't think the, the way to get there is going to show that those things increase equity. I don't think it's going to happen. But yes, it's a, it's a very fun experiment to think through. Yeah, I feel the same. And, and indeed, the question is, how will it build? Who will pay for it? I mean, $1 trillion is not something that you find tomorrow, obviously, even if they, if the Saudi Arabia has a lot of money, they are really dependent on a lot of import from technology as well as money to make it, to make it happen. Actually, what I've heard is that many specialists believe that their vision to build or, or what they try to achieve doesn't even exist. Let's take, for example, 20 minutes you would need to, to travel 170 kilometers. Apparently, there's no train yet available that is actually making that happen. It's about 10 years out. So a lot of the things they're trying to determine don't exist. Uh-huh. They might in the future. And so again, when you're again when thinking about the spirit of the way this was meant, the idea of decreasing the climate change or affecting the climate and doing those things, yeah, I think it's commendable, but how's that going to happen? But what I meant by building it, I meant the actual labor. Like, who are the people going to build it? I agree. I agree. They're still looking for people. And after the, the debacle that we had, it might be even a bit more difficult. Mo, up to you. My first question is, how rich are these guys? I don't even think we have an idea, right? I think I applaud them for being courageous and not really thinking of, is it possible? Will we be able to do it? Because just putting it out there, right, will also improve things. You know, we'll learn so much for us. And for me, it's a Petri dish for a new type of civilization. And I don't mind these guys going berserk. You know, I'll sit back and watch and learn from it. So I think I'll, (laughs) you know, and I like the way the Arab culture is coming back the way it did in the 7th to the 13th centuries. It was a great cosmopolitan civilization. It was an enormous unifying enterprise. Saudi Saudi Arabia is not known for being a unified uh, nation, but I would love some of that vibe to come back. You know, in Northern Africa, Christians, Islamic people, they kind of worked together, they lived together. And I love to see that coming back. I think it's a petri dish for how we can live together as a civilization with a minimal footprint and, you know, just 
do whatever you feel like it and let us learn from it. I love the initiative, but I agree, you know, people will have to build it. And uh, I think if the ethics, but sometimes, you know, things happen with a little bit of friction. And if we ask people for permission, sometimes it's better to ask for uh, forgiveness than permission because so, yeah, it's a balance between ethics, but also pushing the envelope. And as, as Aline said, it's so nice not to have any heritage from existing systems and just think out things from scratch because you have the resources to do it. And I think it also humbles everyone who wants to drive change within an existing organization. A friend of mine met Elon Musk and he said, I know a lot of people have a great ideas, but they don't have the money. So it stops there. And that's what makes the world go round. So great ideas without any money. And I think I really like it. I really like it. And I hear Aditi, I hear Krupa on inequalities. I hear, but sometimes you need to be a little bit courageous and go commando. Yep. Right. And so, see uh, and learn from it and then make it. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I fully agree. So thank you for that. It is clearly something, at least it is clearly something that we will keep an eye on and maybe we'll come back on it in this podcast. But now time for something else. In this health enthusiasm world, we'll see the boundaries of industries blurring between the worlds of healthcare, wellness, and the consumer businesses. You can see how consumer businesses are slowly moving into wellness and healthcare, while the healthcare industry is paying more attention to what is happening outside of their own industry. This brings the following question. What behavior, innovation, or trend from one industry can be worthwhile for another industry? Or in other words, what should we bring inside out or outside in. So tell me, Aline, what's the ID innovation or evolution that you would consider bringing inside out or outside in? So today I would like to talk about chat GPT. So it has been all over social media those past weeks. So ChatGPT is the research project from OpenAI, so a company based in, in California. They can really improve communication. So it's an advanced AI system that can have conversations with humans and understands context. And that, that's also an important point. So they, they've worked on a project that you may have heard of those past month that's called DALI. So that's for images. So you would input some uh, some keywords in there in the system, and it will produce like a piece of art, an image based on those keywords. Like a friend of mine at Frontiers, he actually included two images using Dali in his presentation. It was really cool. So the idea, like Chat GPT, can really change the way that we communicate at the, at the moment. Can really save time for people. So in terms of marketing communication, like you can write like a blog in no time. Like they can say you can write like 20 blogs in one hour using a GPT. Plus you can use DALI to add a picture. And the good thing is that there's actually no copyrights associated to those images or, or to the text. So I think, yeah, it's pretty uh, fascinating system. I don't know if you had the chance to, to try. I think it's, it's, it's very I interesting. I did, yeah. Yeah. There's also, also yeah, some ethics associated to, to that, no? like how can we know that the information provided is, uh, is accurate or no? Issue that we can't really differentiate between the chat and the, the human. How do we know who is actually behind the chat? And I was a bit worried about, about ethics, yeah. And uh, there was an article saying someone asked uh, chat GPT, like, how can I rob a bank? I was like, yeah, that's, uh, that's scary, no? But the answer was actually very interesting. Say, well, you should not. And if you want to rob a bank, just go and talk to your, your, your therapist and talk to him ab about it. So I think that was a, that was cool. But there, I think there's opportunities with chat GPT in, in healthcare. So I asked actually chat GPT this morning, what would be the opportunities in healthcare for him? And I think the answer were, were very nice. So I said we could provide personalized advice or recommendation based on, on patients' medical history. It can help with education for, for patients. Or it can help to automate like customer service to help schedule an appointment or to write reports, to claim for insurances, etc. So yes, and I'm curious to, to hear your, your views on that. Like Aditi, maybe we start with you like doctor. Can you imagine you as a, as a medical expert using chat GPT in your day-to-day -day practice? 
You know, so that's a good question. So what I actually tried it out for, there's a number of things people asked it for healthcare, right? You can ask it about health insurance and health systems and how do you improve it? And it does actually a fairly good job. But to me, what I think would be most helpful is using it to ensure that we have better health literacy, right? So one thing, so health literacy meaning are you able to, or somebody able to understand their health, excuse me, what you're explaining to them about their health, right? So the way that I would talk about a health heart attack with my colleagues is not going to be the same way I would talk about it with a patient. And so, you know, I tried it out actually with a couple of different scenarios of common things that I discharge people with or common conditions. And you can actually change, you know, the way or the level of reading and education, which I think is interesting. And it actually did a fairly good job of describing that. So I find that to be a very useful utility of it because we think we may be describing something in a manner that is a layman's term or easy to understand, but it's impossible for our brains to understand like something that you already know. It's almost impossible. So taking yourself out of that context, the chat GPT could do that for you and ensure that everybody can have something understandable. And so I found that really great. It actually did a fairly good job of of explaining it and being correct at different levels. So I like that and I could find that very useful. Yeah, I think it's really great the way you can actually write the same information in different tones of different levels so so different people can understand exactly what, what you're saying. Mo, what's your view on that? It's a really nice idea, but I, I would be cautious because information and knowledge are not the same things as Aditi said, right? So I love the way you're able, communication is learning to speak the other's language. Then you communicate, right? So I see an incredible opportunity if there are feedback loops where chat GPT would look at eye tracking or microfacial expression to see if memorization and recall has happened and we'll be able to reframe it based on the impact that the information has. So I think in healthcare for health literacy, it would be great if there would be a feedback loop that would tell the, the AI that the message came across. Because, you know, health literacy, all the information is out there. If we really want it, we can get it. But I think it's really convenient. This is kind of, if it's there. We also know that the fact that information is available makes people less open for new information. A lot of physicians have problems with that, with patients saying that they know and their their emotion does not allow for new information because they already figured it out. So I think information is one thing, knowledge is another thing, and I think we need a feedback loop to know exactly if the information really landed. We did a study which was called Health Inertia at Wonderman Thompson Health, uh, sponsored by Becky Chittister, and we knew that a lot of information also prevented people from acquiring new information because they had kind of an attitude that they already knew. So if that AI is able to know whether or not there is recall, there is memorization, and if the message came across, I think there's phenomenal potential there. That's a really great point. And I think also, so I was, um, I was watching a, a TikTok video from a rheumatologist from a, a Palm Beach who was encouraging other other colleagues to use the, the the system so they were using it for insurance denials so patient got denied the treatment and they are asking uh, chat gpt to write the letter for the insurance i think it's very impressive in like under a minute like you have a text but i'm like how do you actually know as a healthcare professional that they're using the right sources or that that, that this correct i was a bit my my dad no Christoph, what do you think of that? Yeah, I fully agree. I saw that example as well. I was pretty amazed and it, it, it added the references in there. Of course, unless you know the references up front because you're a physician and you're in the space, you're not quite sure what, what, what you're sending through, of course. So that's kind of a, a bit dangerous. I must say, I, as soon as it came out, I play with it. First thing um, I asked uh, ChatGPT was, was actually, what does health enthusiasm mean? Which health enthusiasm is basically a word that I invented, if I may say. And so it was interesting to see what it, what it said. And it said, health enthusiasm is an attitude and approach to health that is full of enthusiasm and passion. It's about having a positive attitude and being excited about taking steps to improve your health. So it was, I was, I was happy to see it. I mean, it's to, to see that uh, chat GPT answered it that way. I never wrote it myself in, in, in those words. So it's interesting to see that it came out that way. Now, the second thing I did was uh, I asked ChatGPT to write a love poem for my girlfriend about some other 
things that we, me and my girlfriend lift. And so I send it to her. And, um, well, the, she told me that it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever written to her. Uh, so <laughs> I'm not kidding. This is it. This actually happened. I could, I could read you the, the love poem, but I'm not going to do it, but it, it shows to what the power of it is. I mean, in one second I had a love poem and I had the heart stolen again uh, off of my girlfriend. So it really shows great, great power. And my first reaction was, I can see direct competition to Google search engine. And that has an impact on, on healthcare in itself. Remember when Google came out and people started searching for information about certain symptoms and they went to the doctors to saying like, Hey, look, this is what I have. This is my diagnosis. Well, I think this will probably happen again with, uh, with chat and uh, GPT. But the other thing is that as a healthcare industry, we need to, uh, we need to adapt with this in, in, in mind. I mean, it comes back a bit to what, what Mo was saying earlier is that for about five years, I've been saying that providing information is no longer enough. We need to provide answers, which is not the same as providing information. It's indeed, it's creating knowledge as, um, as, um, as Mo was saying. So, and, and the reference that I always make in my keynotes is that when you ask Google or if you Google search something, you get a list of websites. If you compare that to Alexa, if you ask Alexa something, you'll get some sort of answer. Uh, it's not a list of websites. You get an answer to your question. But of course, voice technology is often a limiting factor here. And so now with chat GPT, if you write a quick answer, you'll get a fast, potentially valuable answer. And so what I always say about these types of changes is that people risk being very quickly accustomized to these types of experiences. Uh, you know, these types of quick answers and not having to look for information, but getting a, a real answer, building knowledge. And so this will create expectations towards other situations in their lives, other parts of their lives, because they will expect the same experience elsewhere as well. Meaning I, I ask a question, I get a quick answer. And so my challenge here for the healthcare system will be, so how can we think about these expectations that will happen really quick? Um, and how can we create similar experiences for patients? Because typically, historically, healthcare has been really bad at meeting expectations, right? We always wait a long time. We're too much focused on medical needs, too much focused on workflows, maybe even procedures and all of that. And so we forget the expectations that people might have because they have certain experiences in their life. And so my thing would be here is that chat GPT will change the experience and the expectations of people. And as a healthcare industry, we need to think about how what will be the impact of that on the way that we provide our solutions to them. Regarding your point about ChatGPT and, and Google search like take, taking over, so I actually did, um, I had a medical question this morning. So first thing I went to Google, I'm like, well, actually I'm in ChatGPT. I could just ask the question there directly. And I was not fully convinced by the answer and I was missing something. I'm like, if I go to Google, I know like the, the sources I will research. I say, okay, that's like, Mary Clinic is saying that that's a good source of information. When I went in chat GPT, there was no, no sources. So I'm like, well, is that true or not? Like as a patient, as a consumer, I don't have the knowledge to know if what chat GPT is saying is true or not. It's true today, of course, but this is still chat GPT three. GPT-4 is already existing. It's not just available. And so we can imagine that in, in, in future versions that we have references because we might discover that this is needed. And so I, I just think that it will change expectations and experiences. Even if today we're not finally there yet, I think towards the future, it might be very valuable. And of course, I mean, Google search will evolve in, in the same way as well. I mean, they are working on their own uh, chat GPT. So Google search will probably evolve in, in, in a similar way. I just want to bring up, because it hasn't been said, when you're talking about sources and research studies, you have to be careful too, because not all of them are equal. So even if you put a bunch of sources in there, you know, so some of the work I do is looking at research outcomes for digital health companies. And I will tell you that sometimes people look at a study and they can't read it in a way that's proper. So if you're not attuned to this or don't know where it's coming from, or you can't read a research study and understand the, at least the basic statistics behind it, you may be getting something that seems like it is correct, but it's not. So that's the other thing too. So make sure that those sources, not all sources are equal either. I totally agree. We, you know, we have a non-for-profit, which is called BNORM, the Belgian National Organization for Regenerative Medicine. We just had a kind of a town hall on all regenerative therapies. And there are scientific networks that have different values because they are sponsored or... So I totally agree. Uh, so... 
there was one speaker who, who was completely appalled by the quality of the research, even if there were uh, sources there and that some networks had a really commercial approach and that all of that research was often flawed for a specific network of which I won't name the exact name. So sources, we need credibility for some way. And sometimes, you know, in the old days when it was printed, it was true. Right. And now the new thing is if, if it had sources, it is also true. So I totally agree with Aditi is that we're, we're quite gullible as far as that's concerned. No, it is a very important point. Krupa, what's your, what's your take on chat GPT? So I think there's been obviously uh, lots of what you've said is, is what I've been thinking. I think the two things that came up for me were the implications for Google and what it means for them and their search. And then for me as someone, I went in to read more around, more around it. And I was reading some articles for, uh, written by some researchers and some professors and they did exactly what we've just discussed. They put a question in and it came out with an answer, but actually how do you know those sources, where that information has come from, what the sources are? And like Aditi said, and for me as a researcher, I'd be really questioning what is the fact that's come, what are the facts that have come behind this to produce this outcome? So I, I feel that it's a massive step forward, but yeah, what are the ethics? What are the What's the research that's coming up behind it to know that this is, you know, a true representation of, of actually what the the outcome is. So, yeah, I think it, I think it is good. A long way to go still um, is what I would say, and, and it's not something I would solely be relying on. That's my take on it. Someone else may say, "Well, actually, I'm quite happy with the responses." So, I guess it depends what you're looking at it for. I think it will come sooner than we we expect. I think it's not that that far away. Yeah. But maybe something that surprised me a bit when I read like the, I researched a bit the, the different opportunities in healthcare. And one, at one point was saying that chat GPT could actually check a report from a doctor and double check errors made by a doctor. I'm like, well, that's actually amazing. Like next level of a, of support and empowerment for healthcare professionals. Yeah. But I agree. I think lots of opportunities coming in the future in healthcare. Great. So with these smart words, I'd like to wrap up the Health Enthusiasm podcast for this month. We've taken a little bit more time than we usually do, but I think the discussion was uh, very valuable. Thank you at least for listening. And if you like the show, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast platform. By the way, you can also find us on the Shift Forward Health channel. It's a podcast, a podcast channel of thought leaders who are actively designing and building the health and self-care business of tomorrow. For now, I'd like to thank he, I'd like to thank our own thought leaders for their insights and health enthusiasm. Thank you, Aditi Joshi, Aline Noiset, Krupa Suter, and Mo Zuwina. My name is Christophe Choquet. We are the Health Enthusiasm Panel, and we'd love to see you again next month for some more health enthusiasm. Ciao. Thanks for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please spread the word. Tell your colleagues to tune in for all the awesomeness, then leave a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This show is produced by Shift Forward Health, the channel for changemakers. Subscribe to Shift Forward Health on your favorite podcast app, and you'll be subscribed to our entire library of shows. See our full lineup at shiftforwardhealth.com. One subscription, all the podcasts you need, and it's all for free. And remember, we might have a lot of work to do in healthcare, but we'll get there faster together. Thanks again.